Welcome to the Simply Resilient Podcast, episode number 74, a Christmas episode. My name is Jesse Ellertson, and I am a certified life coach and a military wife who is in the trenches of life with each of you. This podcast is for military wives who know how to handle the challenges of deployments and frequent trainings, but want to improve the experience that they are having in the process. If you are ready to thrive while your husband is away, then you are in the right place. We are just a few days away from Christmas. And I'm doing a fun episode for you guys. Just keeping it light and simple today. I'm going to read you a few of my family's favorite children's Christmas books. And then I'm going to share some fun facts with you about myself that you might not know. So the first book I'm going to read to you is called I Believe in Santa Claus by Diane Adamson and illustrated by Chad Randall. And this one is really sweet and beautiful. And the illustrations make a big difference. I'd recommend you guys check this one out. So Diane starts the book by saying, sometimes I hear people complain that the department stores put up Christmas decorations too early. Or they say that the merchandisers are only thinking of commercial gain when they advertise with lights and decorations. For me, Christmas symbols cannot be displayed too early or too much. The wreaths, the lights, the red bows, the decorated trees, the presents, all remind me of the true meaning of Christmas. I say thank you to the people of the world who spend time and money to make lovely displays of gifts and decorations. They are advertising the spirit of Christmas and they are reminding me of Christ. And I agree with that completely. That's why I love this book. I believe in Santa Claus. Imagine Santa. What is he like? He wears red. His hair is white. He comes in the night. He loves little children. And there's a picture of Santa holding a small child on his lap, which illustrates how much Santa loves children and reminds me of the way Jesus always gathers small children to him when we read about his life in the scriptures. He wants us to be good. And he brings gifts. Now imagine Jesus. What is he like? He wears red. His hair is white. He comes in the night. And there's a picture of Mary and Joseph holding baby Jesus, who was born in the night under the Christmas star. He loves little children. He knows we are good. And he brings gifts. And there's a picture here of Jesus healing the blind man and giving him back his sight. Santa Claus is a symbol of Christmas. The symbols of Christmas can remind us of the true meaning of Christmas. The symbols of Christmas remind me of Jesus Christ. So I believe in Santa Claus. At the end of the book, she has scriptures that talk about the symbolism of each thing that she mentions, the red, the white, coming in the night, loving children, bringing gifts, and other symbols of Christmas like wreaths, candles, gifts, bows, bells, Christmas trees, candy canes, the color red, stars, and Santa Claus. She talks about what each one represents. And then she says, I believe in Santa Claus has been our family Christmas Eve story for many years. As I have shared it with other families and with groups of all ages, I have been asked to make copies. This book is my effort to answer those requests. Chad Randall graciously accepted the work of putting my ideas into watercolor illustrations. We felt a spiritual, sometimes tearful connection as we collaborated on each symbol with its accompanying scripture and its artistic portrayal. Several events inspired this book. One is the annual display in our shopping mall of life-size replicas of Santa Claus through the ages. As I stroll past these kindly figures with their white beards and intriguing red clothes from other eras, I feel a happy nostalgia from my own memories of Christmas with Santa Claus. Each year at our family Christmas party, we have a visit from Santa. He brings a small treat and a hug for each family member, and I have noticed that the party becomes more lively and happy after Santa's visit. Psychologists have written of the healthful benefits of encouraging children to believe in a kind and generous Santa. 
Strong beliefs in Santa Claus and the tender years are said to foster traits of goodness, helpfulness, and the desire to bring joy and happiness to others. These are all attributes of the Savior, and espousing these traits in our own lives not only contributes to healthful living, but also helps us to become more Christ-like. Parents are counseled to connect the modern Santa Claus with the Christ-like St. Nicholas, who secretly gave gifts to the poor. By keeping the notion of Santa alive in their family traditions, parents help children learn the spirit of giving to others. During the Christmas season, the spirit of Christ is evident in the cheerful way people greet each other in the generous donations to the less fortunate, in the many hours of service given, and by the increased shopping as we select gifts for others. There is a spirit of giving and sharing in the very air that comes with no other holiday. Santa Claus represents giving and loving and kind thoughtfulness of others. All human beings have a basic need to love and be loved. Fantasy is a helpful way for children to feel loved and comforted. Believing in Santa Claus brings happy feelings of love. Children are able to transfer these feelings to the Savior who loves them more than anyone. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. When I see the light in my grandchildren's eyes at Christmas time, when I hear stories of past Christmases fondly remembered by my children, and when I see family and friends doing acts of kindness without being found out, then I am very thankful that I believe in Santa Claus. That's a note from the author. So I'll just quickly tell you my stance when my children ask me if Santa Claus is real or if I believe in Santa Claus. I tell them I do. I believe in Santa Claus. But then they say, but mom, is he real? And I say, well, what do you think? And I say, what do you want to believe? And I say, I want to believe in Santa Claus. I really enjoy believing in the fun and the mystery and the adventure of this amazing man who serves the world. And then I say, it's important to me that you know that all the moms and dads in the world are Santa's helpers. And I always talk to my kids about that because I like them knowing that parents are the helpers, almost like we're the elves, right? And I tell my kids that we are the tooth fairies helpers and the Easter bunnies helpers. So we talk about the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy and Santa Claus all like they're real and that we believe in them. And we do. But then we're also very realistically acknowledging that these amazing characters that we believe in have lots and lots of help. And part of the reason I do that is I like getting credit for what goes on on Christmas morning. (laughs) And another reason is because I want it to be a very soft transition from them having that childlike ultimate belief to, as they get older, understanding all that really goes on and then deciding to continue to believe on their own if that's what they want to do and not that harsh discovery of I thought it was all Santa Claus and now I see what really goes on right so that's what's worked really well for us another thing that I encourage my older kids to do and why they should continue believing in Santa Claus and and enjoying that imagination that we do at this time of year is because it's fun to become one of Santa's helpers as they get older they start to become one of Santa's helpers as they sort of train to be the parent themselves and to be Santa's helpers when they get older. Okay, the next book that I'm going to read to you guys is called Why Christmas Trees Aren't Perfect by Richard H. Schneider. Now, this book is from my husband's childhood, one that he grew up reading and he loves it. And now my whole family loves it. It's one of my kids' favorites and I really enjoy it too. They say that if you creep into an evergreen forest late at night, you can hear the trees talking. If you listen very carefully to the whisper of the wind, you can hear the older pines telling the younger ones why they will never be perfect. They will always have a bent branch here, a gap there. But long, long ago, all evergreen trees were perfect. Each one took special pride in branches that sloped smoothly down from pointed top to evenly shaped skirt. This was especially true in a small kingdom far beyond the Carpathian Mountains in Europe. Here the evergreen trees were the most beautiful of all, for here the sun shone just right, not too hot, not too dim. Here the rain fell just enough to keep the ground moist and soft so no tree went thirsty. And here the snow fell gently day after day to keep each branch fresh and green. 
Each year, as Christmas approached, the Queen's woodsmen would search the royal evergreen forest for the most perfect, most beautiful tree. The one fortunate enough to be chosen would be cut on the first Saturday of Advent. It would then be carefully carried to the castle and set up in the center of the great hall. There it reigned in honor for all the Christmas celebrations. Out in the hushed forest, every evergreen hoped for this honor. Each tree tried to grow its branches and needles to perfection. All of them strained to have the best form and appearance. One tree, small pine, grew near the edge of the forest and promised to be the most beautiful of all. As a seedling, it had listened carefully to the older trees who knew what was best for young saplings, and it had tried so very hard to grow just right. As a result, everything about small pine, from its deep sea green color to the curling tip of its evenly spaced branches, was perfect. It had, in fact, already overheard jealous whispers from the other trees, but it paid them no mind. Small Pine knew that if one did one's very best, what anyone else said didn't matter. One cold night, when a bright full moon glittered on the crusty snow, a little gray rabbit came hopping as fast as he could into the grove of evergreens. The rabbit's furry sides heaved in panic. From beyond the hill came the howling of wild dogs and the thrill of the hunt. The bunny, his eyes wide with fright, frantically searched for cover. But the dark, cold trees lifted their branches artfully from the snow and frowned. They did not like this interruption of their quiet evening when growing was at its best. Faster and faster the rabbit circled as the excited howling of the dogs sounded louder and louder. And then Small Pine's heart shuddered. When the terrified rabbit ran near, Small Pine dipped its lower branches down, down, down to the snow. And in that instant before the wild dogs broke into the grove, the rabbit slipped under Small Pine's evergreen screen. He huddled safely among the comforting branches while the dogs galloped by and disappeared into the forest. In the morning, the rabbit went home to his burrow, and Small Pine tried to lift its lower branches back up to their proper height. It strained and struggled, but the branches had been pressed down too long through the night. Oh well, Small Pine thought, no matter. Perhaps the woodsman wouldn't even notice a few uneven branches near the ground in a tree so beautiful. Several days later, a terrible blizzard lashed the land. No one remembered ever having so much wind and snow. Villagers slammed their shutters tight while birds and animals huddled in their nests and dens. A brown mother wren had become lost in the storm. With feathers so wet she could barely fly, she went from one large evergreen to another looking for a shelter. But each tree she approached feared the wren would ruin its perfect shape and clenched its branches tight like a fist. Finally, the exhausted wren fluttered towards small pine. Once more, small pines, once more, small pine's heart opened and so did its branches. The mother wren nestled on a branch near the top, secure at last. But when the storm ended and the bird had flown away, small pine could not move its top branches back into their perfect shape. In them would be a gap evermore. Days passed and winter deepened. The packed snow had frozen so hard that the deer in the forest could not reach the tender ground moss, which they ate to survive. Only the older, stronger deer could dig through the icy snow with their hooves. One little fawn had wandered away from his mother, and now he was starving. He inched into the pine grove and noticed the soft, tender, evergreen tips. He tried to nibble on them, but every tree quickly withdrew its needles so the tiny deer teeth couldn't chew them. Thin and weak, he staggered against small pine. Pity filled the tree's heart, and it stretched out its soft needles for the starving fawn to eat. But alas, when the deer was strong enough to scamper away, Small Pine's branches looked very ragged. Small Pine wilted in sorrow. It could hear what the larger, still perfect trees were saying about how bad it looked. A tear of pine gum oozed from the tip of a branch. Small Pine knew it could never hope for the honor of being the queen's Christmas tree. Lost in despair, Small Pine did not see the good queen come with the woodsmen into the forest. It was the first Saturday of Advent, and she had come to choose the finest tree herself, because this was a special celebration year in the history of her kingdom. As the royal sleigh, drawn by two white horses, slowly passed through the forest, her careful eye scanned the evergreens. Each one was hoping to be the royal choice. 
When the queen saw small pine, a flush of anger filled her. How could such an ugly tree with so many drooping branches and gaps be allowed in the royal forest? She decided to have a woodsman cut it to throw away and nodded for the sleigh to drive on. But then she raised her hand for the sleigh to stop and glanced back at the forlorn little pine. She noticed the tracks of small animals under its uneven needles. She saw a wren's feather caught in its branches. And as she studied the gaping hole in its side and its ragged shape, understanding filled her heart. This is the one, she said, and pointed to small pine. The woodsmen gasped, but they did, as the queen directed. To the astonishment of all the evergreens in the forest, small pine was carried away to the great hall in the castle. There it was decorated with shimmering silver stars and golden angels, which sparkled and flashed in the light of thousands of glowing candles. On Christmas Day, a huge yule log blazed in the fireplace at the end of the great hall. While orange flames chuckled and crackled, the queen's family and all the villagers danced and sang together around small pine, and everyone who danced and sang around it said that small pine was the finest Christmas tree yet, for in looking at its drooping nibbled branches they saw the protecting arm of their father, or the comforting lap of a mother, and some, like the wise queen, saw the love of Christ expressed on earth. So if you walk among evergreens today, you will find, along with rabbits, birds, and other happy living things, many trees like small pine. You will see a drooping limb which gives cover, a gap offering a warm resting place, or branches ragged from feeding hungry animals. For as have many of us, the trees have learned that living for the sake of others makes us most beautiful in the eyes of God. Such a sweet story. This next one is called Christmas Oranges, and it says it's retold by Linda Bethers. In a town not so far away, and in a time not so long ago, there lived a little girl. Her name might have been Eve or Mary or Sarah, but no one knew for certain, for this little girl had been left on the steps of an orphanage a few years earlier. A note had been pinned to her nightshirt saying, Please take care of this baby. She is a good baby. No clue was given as to her name. The lady in charge of the orphanage, Mrs. Hartley, began calling the baby Rose because of her rosy cheeks, and Rose she had been ever since. Rose's early years were spent at the Greenwoods Orphanage. She was loved and well taken care of by Mrs. Hartley, and because she could remember no other home, she was happy. She used to tell herself she had 30 brothers and sisters, for she loved all of the children at the orphanage. Sometimes they had disagreements and arguments, as brothers and sisters do, but they still cared for each other. One wintry November, when Rose was eight years old, a terrible flu epidemic swept through the country. People old and people young became ill. People old and people young died. The orphanage was no exception. Many of the children became very ill and some of the children died. Mrs. Hartley, with her kind, loving heart, cared for the sick children as if they were her own. She bathed their fevered faces with cool water. She coaxed them to sip broth. She held them close and rocked them through the night. But after many days and nights of this, Mrs. Hartley, too, caught the terrible flu and slipped quietly from this life. With her death came the closing of Greenwood's orphanage. Mrs. Hartley had no children to carry on her work, and the townspeople felt they were too poor to take on the added burden of the orphanage. It was decided that the children would be sent to other institutions throughout the country. And so a few days later, Rose found herself on a train, traveling through the night to a new town and a new home at another orphanage. As Rose timidly stepped through the doors of Iron Gate's orphanage, she could not help feeling scared and disappointed. Her new home was nothing like the one she was used to. Instead of warm, soft blankets on the beds, there were scratchy gray ones. Instead of hand-stitched rugs in the halls, there were bare floors. Instead of kind, loving Mrs. Hartley to care for the children, there was stern, strict Mr. Crampton to run the orphanage. Instead of 30 familiar friends smiling at her, there were 30 strangers staring at her. Silence, Mr. Crampton ordered before marching forward to give Rose a disapproving, inspecting look. Turning to the other children, he said, This is Rose. See that she understands the rules of Iron Gate's orphanage. Emily, take her to the sleeping room and then show her the chores she will be expected to do. The rest of you go back to your duties. A young girl about Rose's age beckoned for Rose to follow her. 
They walked silently to the end of the hall and just as quickly climbed the stairs. Once they had started down the hallway and could no longer be seen from the entry, Emily leaned over to whisper quietly to Rose. I'm glad you're here, she said. I'm ten. How old are you? Rose had been so frightened by Mr. Crampton's order for silence, when it seemed to her the children were already silent, that she dared not speak. She kept her eyes lowered to the floor and did not reply. Emily took her hand and patted it and whispered, It's okay. It's all right to whisper up here. Mr. Crampton can't hear us. It's only when we're downstairs or when he's around that we have to hold still and be still. That's rule number one, hold still and be still. Up here we can visit and be friends. Even though Rose still dared not speak, she smiled a tiny, shy smile at Emily. Over the next few weeks, Rose learned the rules and ways of Iron Gate's orphanage. Some of these she learned from the other children whispering them to her, and some she learned after she had broken a rule. Breaking a rule was the hardest way to learn, for Mr. Crampton believed that once a rule was broken, there must be a punishment. Explaining to him that a new child didn't know a rule did no good. He said that if he let one person off for that excuse, others would try to use it too. Every rule broken must be met with punishment. Mr. Crampton had three punishments he was fond of giving. Sometimes children were sentenced to missing a meal. Sometimes they were given extra chores to do. And sometimes they had to spend the evening by themselves. Rose soon learned most of the rules, or she could guess what the rules would be, and was able to avoid punishment. November's white, bleak snows soon became beautiful accents to December's Christmas greens and reds. Everywhere the Iron Gate's children walked, they saw signs that Christmas would soon come. They would stand out in the cold evening air and watch through lighted windows as happy, smiling families decorated trees or gathered around pianos for singing or baked wonderful Christmas treats in warm, lighted kitchens. On one of these evenings, as Rose and Emily stood watching a lovely little girl twirling around her parlor in her pretty new flannel nightgown, Emily explained to Rose about Christmas at Iron Gates. She told how Mr. Crampton always said he would like to forget Christmas altogether, but the townspeople wouldn't let him. To keep them happy and to keep up appearances, he allowed a tree to be put up on Christmas Eve after the children had gone to bed. He didn't want it up any earlier because he said it excited the children and made them noisy and unmanageable. One generous older man in town always donated a box of oranges to the orphanage for the children's Christmas breakfast. To avoid buying shiny glass balls or other ornaments, Mr. Crampton had the oranges strung with loops and placed on the tree. Emily told Rose how beautiful the dark orange color looked against the pine boughs and how wonderful the citrus and pine fragrance was that filled the entry. Rose had never seen or smelled an orange before. At Greenwood's Orphanage, there hadn't been extra money for such an expensive treat. The Christmas morning surprise there had been a small spoonful of sugar on the porridge. The children had always debated which was the best, to stir the sugar in and try to sweeten the whole bowlful, or leave it in a little pile in the middle of the porridge and eat it all in one delicious bite. Emily tried to explain to Rose about oranges. She said they were sweeter than sugar in a clean, fresh way. She had thought about it a lot, and she was sure that angels ate oranges in heaven. Rose listened to all of this with wide-eyed wonder. She didn't know how she could possibly wait for three more days until Christmas morning. On Christmas Eve, as the children lay in their beds, they whispered excitedly about how beautiful the tree would look and how grand it would be to have a touch of Christmas in the orphanage, even if it was for only one day. It was good that Mr. Crampton's room was downstairs, for he would surely have been angry with all the whispering and wiggling in the bedrooms that night. Rose lay in her bed and tried to go to sleep. She held perfectly still. She closed her eyes. She thought of the words to the lullabies that Mrs. Hartley had sung each night. She tried breathing in and out very slowly, but no matter how hard she tried, she kept thinking about the oranges that would be on the tree, the oranges that she would finally get to taste the next morning. As the night slowly crept by, Rose tried to guess what time it was. When she could stand it no longer, she slipped out of bed and tiptoed to the door. She looked back, but the other children were still asleep. She opened the door carefully so as not to disturb the others and softly, silently padded down the hall to the banister railing. Kneeling down, she gazed in wonder at the beautiful tree with the prized oranges and shimmering candles trimming it. Rose knelt there for only a moment. Then she just as silently walked back to her bed. She lay down and was at last able to sleep. 
Now what Rose hadn't seen was that Mr. Crampton was awake and standing in the doorway to his room. He had watched Rose walk to the rail, kneel down, and then return to her room. He had almost called her back then and there to give her a lecture and pronounce a punishment. At the last minute, he had decided to wait until morning, when he could use Rose as an example to teach all of the children a lesson in obedience. The sun had barely begun to outline the housetops when the children were awake, dressed, and waiting in two straight lines in the aisle between their beds. Standing perfectly still had never been so hard. Well, Mr. Crampton observed dourly, that's one good thing about Christmas. All of you can remember how to behave on Christmas morning. Before we start downstairs, we need to take care of someone who didn't know how to behave last night. Rose, for sneaking out of bed and wandering in the halls after the lights were out last night, you will be punished. This is a most serious offense, so you will receive all three punishments. The children gasped. No one had ever been given all three punishments at one time before. Mr. Crampton paused for a moment to let his words sink in before he continued. You will spend the day up here by yourself. You will scrub the floors of these rooms and you will not get a Christmas orange. The rest of you go downstairs. Rose, go get your buckets and begin. The joy had been taken out of the morning for the children. They knew how much Rose had been looking forward to tasting her first orange they had all told her how wonderful oranges were and had been waiting to see her face as she tasted one for the first time. The children filed slowly out of the room and down the stairs. Each took his orange from the tree and walked quietly into the cold hall to eat breakfast. On one occasion, when the older gentleman had delivered the oranges to Iron Gates, a small boy had asked if the children had to eat the oranges for breakfast or if they could save them and eat them later that night. The gentleman had laughed heartily and told the children that because it was Christmas, they could eat the oranges whenever they wanted. Mr. Crampton had been angered by both the question and the answer, but realized there was nothing he could do about it if he didn't want to upset the gentleman. He would like to have ordered the children to eat them at breakfast, to have the mess over and done with, but he didn't dare go against what had been said. In Christmases past, some children had quickly eaten their oranges while others had held them, sniffed them, and gently poked them all day long, prolonging the anticipation of eating them. But this Christmas, the children were so saddened by the punishments given to Rose that they merely placed the oranges by their bowls of cereal. Emily sat looking at her orange and wishing Rose could have one. When a wonderful idea came to her, her heart started beating faster, her eyes sparkled, and her mouth curved up in a happy smile. Mr. Crampton was called to the front door, and as he left the room, he noticed Emily's happy face. He was surprised that she didn't seem unhappy or upset about Rose. He hoped she had learned a lesson from Rose's punishments. As soon as the door closed behind Mr. Crampton, Emily whispered to the child next to her. He smiled broadly and quickly, whispered to the child next to him, and so it continued until every child had received the whispered message. One by one, the oranges disappeared from the table and were placed in pockets for safekeeping. When Mr. Crampton returned to the room, he saw tables lined with serious-looking children quietly eating their cereal. He noticed the oranges were missing from the table, but knew from the absence of peelings that the children hadn't eaten them. He wasn't sure what to think about this, but decided it was because the children were too sad about Rose to eat the fruit this morning. He nodded his head in satisfaction. He was sure he had put his point across. The children did their chores as they did every day, for now that the oranges had been passed out, today would be treated by Mr. Crampton like it was any other day. The children went about their duties quietly, but each pocket still showed a bump where an orange was hiding. At dinner, the children ate their meals and then quietly slipped the oranges from their pockets, peeled them, and ate them too. Each evening, they were sent to bed immediately after cleaning up from supper, and tonight was no exception. As the children dutifully climbed the stairs to bed, each kept their eyes down and their face solemn. Mr. Crampton couldn't have been more pleased with how subdued the orphans were. The children entered the dark sleeping room quietly. Each pair of eyes was quickly drawn to Rose, who lay huddled on her bed, her face turned away from the door. Emily tiptoed over until she could see Rose's tear-stained cheeks and swollen eyes. Now, closed in sleep, she gently touched Rose's shoulder to waken her. Rose opened her red, confused eyes, and then, as memories of the day returned, they again filled with tears. Oh, Emily, she sobbed. This has been the worst day I've ever had. I didn't know it was so wrong to go look at the tree, and now I've missed it. And the beautiful oranges. Emily hugged Rose as any real sister would and whispered, Don't cry anymore. 
we have a surprise for you. At Rose's first sobs, the children had gathered around her. Now, from a pinafore pocket came a small white bundle. Emily took it and gently placed it in Rose's hands. Because no lights were allowed on in the sleeping rooms, Rose couldn't see what Emily had handed her. She turned toward the window where soft moonlight spilled in through bare, dusty panes. There in her hand was a handkerchief that had been taken from the clean laundry that afternoon. It was carefully folded over a round object. Rose hardly dared to hope that this might be what she thought it was. She looked up at the children gathered around her bed. In the faint light, she could see the excitement on their faces as they watched her every move. With shaking fingers, Rose peeled back the corners of the handkerchief, and there, in the palm of her hand, was an orange. Not just an ordinary orange, but an orange that was lopsided and uneven, an orange made up of a segment from each child's orange. While the children had sat at the table quietly eating, each one had secretly passed a section of orange down to the girls at the ends of the tables. The girls had put the pieces in the clean handkerchiefs in their pockets. Smell it, someone whispered excitedly. Rose raised the handkerchief to her face and drew in a deep, fragrant breath. She closed her eyes and held her breath for the longest time, then released it through an ear-to-ear smile. All of the children smiled with her. Taste it, someone else whispered. Rose slowly raised a segment to her lips. She opened her mouth and took a gentle nibble. Her eyes widened in surprise and her mouth slightly puckered at that first tangy, sweet taste. The children were watching so closely that as Rose opened her mouth, their lips parted too. Now when they saw her pucker and then smile, they all quietly laughed and hugged each other. As if by magic, several more clean, orange-filled handkerchiefs were pulled from pinafore pockets and opened up. The orange segments were quickly broken into smaller pieces and one was given to every child. Each one took one last sniff of that fresh orange smell and one final lick of that tangy, delicious juice before popping the last small bite into a waiting mouth. While the children enjoyed the end of the Christmas oranges, they all commented on how they had never had such sweet fruit before. This year's oranges were the best by far. What the children didn't realize until many years later was that the oranges were the best that day because they were sweetened with friendship, thoughtfulness, and love. In the years to come, many of those children at the orphanage had more money and possessions than they had ever dreamed possible, but they never forgot the feelings that were in their hearts that day as they each gave a small slice of orange away. We love that story in our family. It's one of our favorites, and because of this story, my kids get an orange in their stocking every year. Okay, the final book that I want to read to you guys today in this episode is called A Christmas Dress for Ellen and is retold by Thomas S. Monson and illustrated by Ben Sowards. This is one of my favorites and that's why I saved it for last. Christmas is many things to many people, from the eager materialistic grasping of a child for a present to the deep spiritual thankfulness of the mature heart for the gift of a savior. If there's one common denominator, perhaps it is this, Christmas is love. Christmas is the time when the bonds of family love transcend distance and inconvenience. It is a time when love of neighbor rises above petty day-to-day irritations and doors swing open to give and receive expressions of appreciation and affection. If to our Christmas gift list is added the gift of service, not only to friends and family, but also to those who badly need help, then our giving can be complete. Several years ago, Marion Jepson Walker related to me an experience her family had one Christmas season long years ago. It provides a touching example of the gift of service. It was December of 1927 in the remote prairie town of Hillspring, Alberta, Canada. A young mother, Mary Jepson, was getting her five small children ready for bed. Her heart was so full of sorrow and concern that she felt it would surely break. It was Christmas Eve and all of the children except for the oldest, Ellen, age 10, were dancing around, excited to hang their stockings for Santa to come. Ellen sat very subdued in a corner of the cold, small two-room house. She felt that her mother was wrong to let the children build up their hopes for Santa to come, for there would be no Santa. There was nothing to fill the stockings. There would be only a little mush for breakfast. Just a week earlier, the family's only milk cow had died of starvation. The winter had just started, and already it was cold and harsh. 
Times were hard, and Ellen, being the oldest, had too much responsibility put on her thin, young shoulders. She had become very cynical, and childhood hopes and dreams and excitements had been put out of mind much too early. Mary helped each one of her children to hang a little darned and mended stocking, but she couldn't persuade Ellen to participate. All Ellen could say was, Mother, don't do this. Don't pretend. After the stockings had been hung, Mary read to the children the Christmas story from the Bible and then recited a few Christmas poems from memory, memories of her own happy childhood. Now Mary sat alone by the dying fire. Her husband Leland had gone to bed several hours earlier, feeling sad and discouraged. Mary knew that he felt he had failed his wife and children. She thought of their plight here in this land of ice and snow. Spring had come very late and winter had come very early for the last two years, causing all of their crops to freeze and fail. In October, Mary had received a letter from her sisters living in Idaho. They told her that they knew times were very hard for her, and although they had suffered some setbacks themselves, they wanted to know what they could send the family for Christmas. Mary hadn't written back right away. She was reluctant to tell them how poor and destitute the family really was. Finally, in November, seeing that things were not going to get any better, in desperation, she had written. Mary had requested only necessities. She told them of her family's urgent need for food, especially wheat, yeast, flour, and some cornmeal. She added that it would be a blessing if they could ship just a bit of coal, for it was so cold. And their fuel was down to almost nothing. She asked for some old used quilts, for all of hers had worn thin and were full of holes, and they could no longer keep her children warm. Also, she requested some worn-out pants to cut up and use to once again patch the pants her boys were wearing. She mentioned their desperate need for socks and shoes and gloves, warm hats and coats. At the close of the letter, she had written, If you could just find a dress that someone has outgrown, I could make it over to fit Ellen. She is far too somber for such a young girl. She worries so about the family and about our needs. She has only one dress that she wears all the time, and it is patched and faded. This book makes me very emotional. <laughs> the week before Christmas had found Leland daily hitching up the horse to the sleigh and making the three-hour round trip from Hillspring into the town of Cardston to check at the train station and post office for a package from Idaho. Each day he would receive the same disappointing answer. Finally, on the day of Christmas Eve, he left early in the morning, went into Cardston and waited for the one daily train. He checked at the post office as well. He left at noon, however, to return home to Hillspring before dark. And he left without a package. As he rode home, he wept openly, knowing how sad Mary would be. Now, as Mary ceased her reminiscing, she realized how cold she was. The fire in the stove was all but out. The clock on the wall showed that it was 3.30 a.m. She looked up at the sad little mended stocking, still hanging empty, and felt that her heart was hanging just as empty. Outside, the wind was blowing at about 70 miles an hour and the snowstorm had intensified. She was about to put out the lantern and go to bed for a few hours when suddenly there was a knock at the door. Mary opened the door to find a man standing there with his son. For all the world, he looked exactly like what she would expect Santa himself to look like. He was covered with frozen snow and ice. For a moment, Mary doubted her senses, but then she realized it was George Sidney Shaw. The mailman from Cardston. He belonged to the church, and he knew the plight of the family. He told Mary that he knew of their waiting for the package from Idaho, and that he knew there would be no Christmas without it. George Shaw was a good man, a University of Utah graduate. He had years before been stricken with a disease that had caused him to gradually go blind. After receiving a priesthood blessing, he had miraculously regained partial sight in one eye. Although he was unable to work in his chosen profession of engineering, he had found work as a postman to support his wife, Ingeborg, and their eight children. On this particular day of Christmas Eve, George, with a team of horses pulling his sleigh, had traveled through a violent snowstorm to deliver the mail to half a dozen or more communities near Cardston. When he returned to the post office that afternoon, he was so cold and exhausted that he ached throughout his body. He longed to settle his horses for the night and join the family celebration in his warm, cozy home. But someone from the train station came by the post office to tell him that ten large crates had arrived from the States for the Jepson family. It was about four in the afternoon, but already it was dark. The storm was getting worse. 
George's horses, shivering with cold, were not capable of making another trip. The mailman decided it was just too late. There wasn't anything he could do about it. George went home to his eager family. He placed the Christmas tree in the living room, and the children joyfully gathered around to decorate it. Although he was surrounded by happy activity and by the delicious aromas of traditional Danish holiday foods, George could not shake off thoughts of the struggling Jepson family and the packages waiting at the post office. He took Ingeborg aside, and the couple knelt and prayed for guidance. They decided that the only thing he could do was to take the crates out to the Jepsons' little isolated farmhouse in Hillspring that very night. So with a borrowed team of horses and a borrowed sleigh with sharper runners than his own, he set out for the Jepson place, accompanied by his 15-year-old son, Sidney. Ingeborg insisted that Sidney go along. Although George's eyesight was passable in the daytime, his wife knew he would not be able to see at night in the midst of a fierce prairie blizzard. Ingeborg and the children sent the father and son on their way with sandwiches and little candies and snacks, and hot rocks were wrapped in blankets to keep their feet warm through the long journey. George and his son struggled to find their way through the blinding snowstorm. Several times they felt the guidance of the Spirit as they prayed that they would reach their destination safely. With the snowdrifts deepening hour by hour, the horses plodded along more and more slowly. At last they arrived at the farmhouse. They were relieved to see one small light still on in the house. When George and Sidney entered the home and saw how bare and humble it was, they knew why they had felt so urgently prompted to make the trip. After the postman had told Mary about his decision to come, he and his son brought the crates into the house. Mary insisted that the two stand by the stove to get warm. She got some of Leland's clothes to replace their frozen wet clothing. It was nearly five o'clock in the morning when the sleigh headed back into town. It had taken George and Sidney eight hours to get to the Jepson's place because of the severity of the storm. They wouldn't get home until noon or later on Christmas Day. Mary thanked them both as best she could, but she always said that there just were not words enough. Not words enough to express her thanks. After all, how do you thank a miracle and a Christmas miracle at that? Mary quickly began to unpack the crates, for she had only an hour or so before the children would awaken. At the top of one of the crates, she found a letter from her, from her sisters. They told her that quilting bees had been held all over the Malad Valley, and from these, six thick, warm, beautiful quilts had been made for them. They also told of the many women who had sewn shirts for the boys and dresses for the girls, and of others who had knitted warm gloves and hats. The donation of socks and shoes had come from people for miles around. The Relief Society had held a bazaar to raise the money to buy the coats, and all of Mary Jepson's sisters, nieces, cousins, aunts, and uncles in Idaho had gotten together to bake the breads and make the candy to send. There was even a crate half full of beef that had been cured and packed so that it could be shipped, along with two or three slabs of bacon and two hams. The letter closed with these words, We hope you have a Merry Christmas, and thank you so much for making our Christmas the best one we've ever had. Mary's family awakened that Christmas morning to what to them was a miracle. Bacon was sizzling on the stove, and hot muffins were ready to come out of the oven. There were jars of jams and jellies and canned fruit. For each boy, there was a bag of marbles, and for each girl, a little rag doll made just for her. Every stocking that was hanging was stuffed full of homemade taffy, fudge, divinity, and dried fruit of every kind. Later, Mary and Leland were to find tucked in the toe of the stocking that had been sent for them a few dollars with a little note that the money was to be used to buy coal for the rest of the winter. The most wonderful miracle, though, occurred... When Ellen, the very last to get up, rubbed her eyes in disbelief as she looked at the spot where her stocking was supposed to have been hung the night before and saw hanging there a beautiful red Christmas dress, trimmed with white and green satin ribbons. She later said it was the most wonderful Christmas ever. That morning, with the Christmas dress for Ellen, a childhood had been brought back, a childhood of hopes and dreams and Santa Claus and the miracle of Christmas. From a beloved Christmas hymn, we recall these lines. How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. 
so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. May all of us welcome the Savior of the world into our hearts and into our Christmas celebrations. May we experience the joy of setting aside convenience and personal comfort, if need be, in favor of Christian service. Then may we learn, as did an ancient prophet, that when we are in the service of our fellow beings, we are truly in the service of our God. That story always touches me so deeply and helps me realize how many amazing blessings that I have and helps me be so grateful for this life that I get to lead. And I love to feel grateful. So thank you for letting me share my favorite Christmas stories and thoughts with you guys today. I'm going to close this Christmas episode with a few fun facts about me that you may or may not know. Okay, I am the youngest of six kids. I was born in California. I speak Spanish. I have a degree from Brigham Young University in finance. I want to be all of my nieces and nephews' favorite aunt. I love having bling on my wedding ring. I don't wear a lot of jewelry except my wedding ring and some earrings. I mostly wear my hair up. I always, for some reason, wanted to have twins. I love food. I love cooking and I love feeding people. I don't mind a sink full of dirty dishes. That doesn't keep me up at night. I'm working on a big goal to build an indoor pool for my family and pay for it entirely with life coaching money. And I want to do that within five years of starting my life coaching practice. I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have a dog named Maddie, who you can hear in the background. <laughs> I love staying up late and sleeping in. I love getting deals on things. I love cheap vacations. I love Costco. My favorite dessert is anything chocolate peanut butter. That's my dog. Anything with that combination of chocolate and peanut butter. I love watching movies in the movie theater. That's my favorite date night activity. I don't really like drinking soda because it makes me hiccup. So my preferred beverage is water. I make homemade whole wheat bread for my family. I grew up eating it and now I make it for my family. I am tall. I am five feet, 10 inches tall, which is pretty tall for a woman. And I wear a size 10 in shoes. So I am just not a petite woman. And I wrap my arms around that. I've learned to love that. I'm usually blonde. I was naturally blonde as a child and it got a little darker over time. So then I started to highlight my hair and, and keep it blonde. But I went full brunette in college and had dark brown hair for a while and then eventually worked it back to blonde. And then I was my natural hair color for a long time and I've just recently started highlighting it again. I married my high school sweetheart. Another way I like to say this is I married the person I went to prom with. I do not drink alcohol or do drugs or smoke or drink coffee. I do not have any tattoos, but I'm planning on getting a tattoo of my son Keith's name on my back. I love shark movies and zombie movies. I don't know why, but those two types of movies really intrigue me. I am an extrovert, but I love being alone as well. My love language is words of affirmation. That's definitely my primary love language. I love taking pictures and being in pictures and have a little nickname for myself of Jesserazzi, like paparazzi. I'm good at keeping my house tidy, but I'm not very good at cleaning my house on a regular basis. I love being a mom and I also love getting breaks from my kids. One of my favorite things to do is to take naps. I'm a professional sleeper, is another way I like to put that. For the most part, I don't swear. I have only kissed two boys in my whole life. I dated my husband in high school. And then when he was serving a two-year church service mission right after high school, I went on to college and had a boyfriend in college. Shout out to Dave. <laughs> He's the other boy I've kissed. And then when my husband got home from his mission, we got married. So those were the only two boys I've ever kissed. I got married when I was 20 and I had my first baby at 21. 
I have a very fun and silly dream job that I want to do when I'm old and I'm doing it just for fun. And this is just the, my favorite job I've ever had besides being a life coach, of course. I loved being a waitress and I want to do that when I'm older just for fun, just because I love food and I love people. And the dream job that my husband has that he wants to do when he's old because it's been his favorite job he's ever had is mowing lawns at a golf course. So he and I are very different in that his favorite thing about mowing lawns at a golf course was that he was alone and he didn't have to talk to anybody. And then he got to golf for free. So he loved all of that. I have a dream of being a voice in a cartoon of either doing a song in a cartoon or being the voice of a character in a cartoon. I love to sing. I have been pregnant seven times. I have six living children and I've had one stillborn baby. And with all of that, I have never once had a miscarriage. So seven full pregnancies, no miscarriages, which is pretty, pretty amazing. I love to read, but I don't read very much because I always fall asleep whenever I sit down to read. So audiobooks definitely work better for me because I'm able to be doing things while I'm reading so I can actually get through the book. Some of my favorite TV shows are The Office, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Raising Hope, Switched at Birth, Parks and Recreation, Modern Family, and Parenthood, among many others. I love watching reality cop shows. Like my husband and I will just go on YouTube and you type in live PD, which is like an A&E show, I think. And then you can just watch segments from that. I don't know why, but that is one of my favorite things to do. I am in a book club, which I love. I love hosting things at my house. I like sports, but I'm not super talented. One of my favorite hobbies is arranging flowers. And I worked at a roadside corn stand for three summers when I was 13, 14, and 15, the summers that I was those ages. And I sold corn at the Harwood Farms roadside corn stand. We also sold peaches and tomatoes and watermelon. And I loved that job as well. Those are just some silly, fun, interesting facts about me that I thought you guys might enjoy hearing. And that concludes this Christmas episode for you guys today. Ready to take what you are learning here on the podcast to the next level? Then join me for Resiliency Training. This is my monthly coaching program that includes a private coaching session with me each month, along with weekly content and individual email support. Start anytime for just $100 a month and continue at that rate as desired with no obligation. We can all use a little help sometimes to get through the difficulties of military life, and that's exactly the boost this program will give you. Sign up on my website, simply resilient.net. I can't wait to work with you.